Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, awesome guest, awesome, awesome guest, Drew Carolyn of the book Matinee, the all-ages document of the CBGB scene that Radio Rahim just put out. It's a fantastic book. So if you have any holiday money or holiday gift cards burning a hole in your pocket you got to go out and get this book but more on that in a second but first if you want to get in touch with me you can head over to uh you can actually just hit me up at uh turnoutapunk at gmail.com you can send emails there and we will get in touch with you if you would like to find me on various forms of social media it's at left for damien if you use facebook and you would like to follow the show on facebook and you know, communicate over Facebook. My brother and show producer, Tristan Abraham, runs a Facebook page. It's turned out or Facebook.com slash turned out a punk. If you don't use Facebook and you still want to see that stuff, you can go over to uh, turnedoutapunk.tumblr.com. And if you would like to support the show, the best way to do uh, to, sorry, the best way to do that is by heading over to iTunes, subscribing to this thing, writing a review, rating it. Or if you don't use iTunes, just tell all your friends. Spread the word. Tell everyone that you know that would enjoy the kind of stuff that we nerd out about on this show uh, that we're out here doing this thing. And you can support us that way. Speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the support of the fine folks at Vans. Vans came on board. Let me do what I want. You know, they've been helping me out for a long time uh, with my band, and now they're helping me out with this show. So it's fantastic. Thank you very much. They don't tell me who to book, so I can book whoever I want. It's it's great. It is really, really great. Speaking of great, uh, and if you go over that iTunes page, you will see that there are some other great podcasts in the Turned Out of Punk family. Oil and Flowers, hosted by Buddha Blaze and myself, which is about cannabis. And there's also Turned Out of Punk Footnotes, which will be back on, I think, tomorrow probably by the time you hear this, or, or very soon. Yeah, it's probably tomorrow uh, with a New Year's special. The New Year's special features both Dave's back at it, and we talk about all sorts of stuff, including uh, a Turned Out of Punk Hall of Fame. What would that look like? How would we make a Turned Out of Punk Hall of Fame? So that's all this week on Turned Out of Punk Footnotes, uh, with also co-host, regular um yeah, co-host. We're co-hosts of that show, uh, Chris O'Toole and myself. So check out that thing as well. Whew. Okay, that's it. Well, I guess we're getting on to uh, this week's show. Having a very fun holiday week myself. Uh, I got to get away with my family a little bit. You know, we're in the middle of nowhere. It's nice and quiet. I'm able to record this podcast. As you can tell, you don't hear a lot of another noise in the background. That's because, yeah, you know, we're... Kind of in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> There's a lot of snow, but it's awesome. Having a great time. Hope you're having a great time too. If you have to work, hope you're getting through that. And if you have a little time off, hope you're enjoying it. You know, um, yeah, we got we got big things coming up in the show. We got a huge run of guests coming for you in the new year. But first, Drew Carolyn of the book Matinee. Matinee is one of my favorite books that came out last year, along with Urban Styles, which you talked about. There's a couple other books that were fantastic. Uh, Matinee, though, is, is something really special because it's a document of a scene that wasn't incredibly well documented. You know, there were obviously fanzines around the CBGB's Matinee, early, early hardcore scene. But what Drew did is kind of go out there on the street set up a studio and document all these kids, all these amazing characters. Matt Dillon, 
Yep, that's right. The actor Matt Dillon at an AF show. Uh, he documented all these people. All these people are in this book. It's a unbelievable book that Radio Raheem put out. Beautiful package. There's a seven inch. There's a slipcase version. There's all sorts of stuff. Um, put out by our friends on the show, Cooch and Fat Rich, or Fritch, sorry, not Fat Rich anymore. That's an old nickname um, that I'm sure he's not a big fan of. So Fritch and Cooch have put out this book, and I strongly recommend you pick it up. Uh, this is a fun podcast. We get into some cool stuff about a time and a place that is very special to us fans of punk and hardcore. So here it is. Sit back and relax and enjoy Drew Carolyn on Turned Out a Punk. All right, Drew, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, my pleasure. Well, as I was just saying, you telling you off air, you know, obviously matinee, an incredible book. Uh, like an unbelievable document that I want to get to, but I got to start this thing off the way I start all these shows off, which is how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? You know, before it was even called punk, um, I think I was out on Long Island. I had just moved from New York from the Lower East Side out to Long Island. And a buddy of mine said, Hey, you know, I'm working with this band, the laughing dogs and, uh, they're on tour of this thing called CBGB's Comes to Hot Dog Beach. <laughs> I had gone to Hot Dog Beach, I, I think that was the summer of 75. Wow. And, uh, and you know, the Laughing Dogs were an amazing band, but there was a group called The Shirts from Brooklyn. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Annie Golden was the lead singer. Mm-hmm. And now of Orange was, the Orange's New yeah. Black fame. Oh, she was just, you know slutty and sexy and had an unbelievable voice and the band was incredible yeah and that was like really my first taste and after that my buddy doug who took me there was uh roading for uh the laughing dogs and uh you know i'd go down to cbgb's and help him out so that was really my you know my first foray into that i mean i you know, i saw the you know uh, talking heads and tough darts and mink the villain and all that stuff awesome um, so that was like, you know, way back. It was just like the home of underground rock. It wasn't even called punk yet. But um, but then, you know, then I saw Patti Smith. It's probably in 76. I was up in New Paltz just going to school there. And, you know, she was spitting and, you know, doing all doing all that stuff that I guess, you know, punks did. But uh, <laughs> that was really that was really the whole beginning of it. And, um, you know, I mean, before that, I mean, as a kid, I, I listened to a lot of you know, MC5 and the Stooges and a lot of that, you know, metal type shit, which just drove me wild. Where were you hearing about that stuff? Because it wasn't like, you know, obviously common music at that point. Well, you know, it, you know, it's weird. I mean, the, the way I discovered uh, the MC5 and, and the Stooges was I was into the Doors and they had that great uh, logo on Electra. Yeah. I saw that logo on, you know, like the MC5 um, and the Stooges, and you know, you, and then you get those records, and you hear me like, "Oh my God!" You know, <laughs> but out the jams at that time, you know, it was like, you know, the worst thing you could possibly do was, you know, put that on at ten at your house, and, and uh, you know, have your neighbors hate you. So that was that was really how it all started. But um, 
where were yeah, you find, where were you buying those records sorry I, i'm just like yeah. fascinated by kind of like where like where would you buy those records at that point what was this were there like a local store where they carry them at the big oh, chain stores well, I, mean, I i grew up i grew up in around the east village so i mean there were yeah. freaking tons of record stores i mean uh you know, free being back then it was actually called Silverlight. You know, I'd go there all the time, uh-huh. which is right down from the Fillmore East at that time. And uh, you know, Larry Schaefer's, uh, DLNH, there were just you know tons of record stores. So um, you know, and then it was another one. I can't remember the name. But it was right around where Max Kansas City was on on Seventeenth and Park. And you know, you'd go in there. And, like I remember the first time I saw an Alice Cooper record. Like, oh, I gotta get that. <laughs> so I mean, I had access to that kind of stuff. I was pretty lucky in that respect. Yeah, did you? What about the Fugs? Were they on your radar at that point at all? Oh, the, yeah. Well, yeah, they were actually because um, you know, like there was uh, Johnny, Johnny, Johnny. Why did you beat up that queer? You know, I was like, oh, yeah. it's like crazy shit. And uh, uh, I think it was called Johnny Piss Off. Yeah, I mean that was you know, you got to understand. Growing up down there, there were kids who were older than me, and you know, and everyone swapping stories and talking about how, you know, they did this, they saw that. So, you know, I was like a sponge. So I took all that. So yeah, the Fugs were on my radar, but you know, I don't think I owned any Fugs records. I was probably afraid to bring those home. <laughs> were, uh, were the first, uh, like that, was that laughing dog show, the first show that you ever went to, or did you go to anything before that? Oh no, God, no. I, I, yeah, I went to shows way before that. Um, I remember seeing, and I don't really even remember my first show, but I think I saw like Grand Funk Railroad. Oh, sick. At Madison Square Garden in like 1970. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and so I, I went, I mean, I was going to shows when I was in like sixth grade. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I went to the Fillmore East a bunch of times before it closed. I walked to the Academy of Music, which turned into the Palladium, you know, and then it was the bottom line, and then it was, you know, CBs and Great Gildersleeves and TR3 and, you know, the squat. I mean, it just went on and on. But I, I was going to shows when I was really young. What was it that brought you to music? Were you from, like, a musical f- household or? You know, my mother could sing, but I know. I mean, <laughs> no, I think it was just – um it was one of those things, you know, when you were hanging out in the park, everyone, you know, had different things going on. And, yeah. and like I said, a lot of the older kids, you know, were talking about, hey, I just saw, you know, uh, the Jimi Hendrix experience last night or traffic and, you know, and all that stuff. So it was just one of those things. I love buying records. You know, I used to buy 45s all the time and, and albums and, yeah. and all that stuff. So it was just, you know, music was just in the in the area, you know, yeah. at all well, like, did you ever see the Velvet Underground at all? No, no, definitely too young for that. Yeah. Uh, what about uh, the Stooges? Because I know they came through, but I think th- you're probably too young for that, right? Too. Definitely too young for that. I mean, I saw Iggy a bunch of times, but yeah, uh, yeah definitely, um, you know, definitely not. Um, you know, and even like, you know, uh, when I was in like sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, I was only allowed to go to the early show, <laughs> and I had to be home by a certain time. So. Uh, you know, but no, I didn't. I didn't catch any. I would love to, have, but I hadn't. No. So you, after you went and saw the Laughing Dog show, and you've kind of like entered this, like I guess, was it, what were they calling it at that time? Were they just calling it like new rock, or was it being classified as anything different, like bands that were kind of in that CBGB's pre-punk kind of scene? Well, yeah, no, I mean CBGB's was like you know they called it the home of underground rock. Yeah, and I think the thing with. Um, you know, with the club back then was you had to play only original music. You know, you couldn't come in and say, okay, the next song is Smoke on the Water by Deep Purple. <laughs> you had to have all original stuff. And, um, you know, again, seeing the shirts, I mean, they were like, 
you know, there was something about that. They were really, really tight, and she was an incredible performer. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that was kind of, that was the vibe, you know, at that particular club. And the sound system was amazing there, you know. So, um, that's kind of how it all started. Yeah. Do you remember the first time uh, you ever heard someone kind of refer to this music as punk music? I don't really, I don't really know. My buddy Carl, uh, you know, who I grew up with, he, you know, he used to go to Bleaker Bob's all the time. And I remember when he started bringing home records, um, he had Tubeway Army and he had had Dead Boys and um, even like early Joe Jackson, Stiff Little Fingers, all that stuff. I mean, it was probably around that time, uh, but I don't really specifically remember, you know, the punks. I mean, maybe it was the Ramones. I don't know, but I don't remember specifically when somebody actually called it punk. What about actually speaking of the Ramones? Do you remember the first time you ever saw them? You know, I only saw. Well, I saw them a bunch of times, but I, I saw them. I was up at school in New Paltz, and I went to the Last Chance Saloon mm-hmm. in Poughkeepsie to see them. And it wasn't until uh, nineteen seventy eight. Um, and again, I was with my buddy Doug, and you know, a bunch of people from up there. But they were. They were incredible, you know. I mean, you know, fifty songs in thirty minutes, and uh, and and really loud. But um, yeah, that was a friend. I took pictures too. I have photographs of that. Oh wow, but, uh, that's that, awesome. Yeah. Um. So you were taking photographs, I guess, by as young, like seventy three, right? You started taking photos. Yeah, yeah. I started. I started getting into it in seventy three, and then when I was in high school out of Long Island, we had some great, uh, you know, some great art teachers out there that were, you know, right out of college. Um, you know, this, you know, thought I knew everything and you know, city kid. Um, but I really got into photography out there, and um, you know, you know, obviously, you know, music and photography was a, you know, a great marriage, and it's um, kind of how it all started. Yeah, like what were uh, some of the early shows that you went and photographed, or were you like taking f- shows at photos at shows early on? Well, like the Ramones, uh, Patti Smith. Um, I had a friend of mine, uh, Richard Corman, who introduced me to Peter Cunningham, who was the house photographer at the Bottom Line, and he got a kick out of me being a little photographer. He said, hey, anytime you want to come down, just bring your camera. And I was like, Are you kidding me? So I I shot a lot of stuff at the Bottom Line, but a lot of it was like. Um, you know, blues. I did Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee, Rossan, Roland Kirk, um, a lot of uh, Ray Charles, um, you know, a lot of jazz and stuff like that, which I was also into at the time, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so, uh, you know, there was that. But I mean, in terms of like punk shows and stuff like that, I mean, obviously, like I said, there were Rollins, Patty Smith, um, I'm trying to, uh, uh, Wayne County um, was incredible, um, Mink Deville. Uh, you thought obviously the laughing dogs, you know, bands like that. Were there any like Long Island bands from around that time that you remember or local bands that kind of were on the radar? Well, I remember, I remember the good rats, but I don't, oh, but I wasn't, you know, I didn't never saw them, but I remember they were like, you know, <laughs> the, I mean, I'm talking like, you know, mid seventies, Yeah, but, um, from Long Island, you know, I, I don't really. Um, someone, someone's probably going to kill me, but I don't remember <laughs> anything off the top of my head. Um, you know, un, until the hardcore came around. I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Well, definitely. Yeah, picks up a couple years later. Um, 
I guess which kind of leads me to like, you know, that scene was kind of bubbling up around like the end of the 70s, you know, or, you know, eight, uh, on to the 80s where you have like bands like the Stimulators and, and that kind of wave of of the Mad and stuff like that. Did you ever catch any of those bands at the A7 or any of that stuff? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I remember specifically um, and I don't know, this is a little blurry. I think it was the winter of 79 or 80 and it was very cold. And I used to just, you know, kind of, you know, run around the different places. And I went into TR3, which was down on lower lower West Manhattan. And, uh, you know, walked in the club and this band was playing. It was like a thrash band. And it was really noisy and the place was packed. And the drummer was, uh, he couldn't have been more than 10. You could hardly <laughs> see over the, over the drum kit. And it was the band The Stimulators. <laughs> And uh, and of course, it turned out that the drummer was you know Harley Flanagan. <laughs> that that I that I'll never forget because it was like holy shit, that kid's like still in diapers. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I mean that that was uh, I remember that, and you know, I remember lots of shows. But but yeah, bands like that. I mean, I'm trying to think of who else um, off the top of my head. I can't remember anybody, but that one I'll I'll never forget. Yeah. Like- uh, there's a band yeah. that from back then that I'm like kind of obsessed with. The band, the Mumps. Did you ever? The Mumps. Yeah. Well, I I knew of them. I never saw them, but there was I don't know if you remember there was a show called the uh, the American Family. Absolutely. It was on public television, and I remember watching that show, going, "Wow, people in California are strange." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, they had the one son who was gay, and that turned out to be. Um, you know, the lead singer of the Mumps, uh, Lance Loud. Yeah. Was Lance. Um, but I, I remember, you know, I remember the, I remember them. I never saw them though. So I guess what, what led you to kind of decide at some point to document, uh, the scene that was happening? Like, were you interested in documenting the people going to these shows prior to sort of your, your photo project? Uh, no, not really at all. I mean, I just, um, it's one of those things that I just stumbled upon, um, and, you know, I tell the story, I was just, you know, I was in the East Village at 2.30 on a Tuesday night, <laughs> you know, walking around Avenue A, like, you know, most derelicts do. And um, I'd seen a couple of kids outside of uh, Tompkins Square Park throwing the Frisbee, and they were young, really young. They were like, you know, skinheads, and they were laughing. It was like a guy and a girl, from what I remember. And I thought, wow, they look really great. Mm-hmm. And uh, in my mind, I thought, I'd love to photograph them. Um, and my style was, you know, more like, you know, daylight, that type of thing. So I thought, hmm, well, now I'm going to do that. Anyway, um, it just, you know, probably a year and a half went by. And, um, you know, I'd gone by CBGB's on a Saturday and, and saw a matinee going on. And I thought, wow, this is how I can photograph these kids. Um, you know, set up a studio across the street. And I had been working for Richard Avedon, who was doing a book called In the American West. And that's exactly what he did. He set up a, a daylight studio like it, at events out in the West where everyone would come out of the woodworks. And he would pick and choose, you know, people to photograph. So I essentially did the same thing um, and, and set up a studio across the street. Now, I mean, at the time when I saw these kids, I was interested in their faces. I had no idea that there was this whole scene going on with music. I was just, I had no idea, you know? And um, so I just basically started doing it. And, you know, I walked into the club after the first day and I think, you know, bands like, uh, you know, Death Before Dishonor and yeah. Ism, you know, and there was all these young kids and they were going absolutely mental. And I was like, okay, I love this. <laughs> I'm in. 
you know, and I was like older and, you know, a lot of kids thought I was a cop at first. And, you know, <laughs> it was just pretty funny. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I just kind of stepped in shit really, you know, I had no idea that I was, you know, was going to come into this whole, uh, you know, scene that was, that was evolving, you know? So had you, I guess you would, yeah. Cause as you're saying, you're a little bit older, so you'd fallen out. This is a much younger scene at the time that not much, but uh, like slightly younger scene at the time that it kind of cropped up. Uh, like, were you aware, like, was there any sort of media attention put on the scene that early or, or that hadn't started yet? Like the, uh, I'm thinking of like the village voice cover and the Donahue that's like a few years off. Yeah. I, I hadn't seen any. And to be honest with you, I mean, when I started seeing that they were having hardcore matinees, I mean, to me, hardcore was like, you know, a dirty movie you saw in 40 seconds. <laughs> So, I mean, it was it was all kind of new to me, you know what I mean? But um, but it was really, um, you know, I, I think I've told this story before. I mean, the first day I went down there, you know, it's a setup. You, I have a nine-foot seamless over my shoulder. I'm carrying a case with, you know, with, with cameras yeah. and a roll of tape, and I've got to set this whole thing up, and I'm by myself, and I'm thinking, I'm out of my mind. Yeah. But, uh, you know, some of the Bowery bums are helping me, you know, set up. And <laughs> You know, after the first day, I mean, I shot a bunch of pictures and it was, you know, I felt good, but I didn't know what I had. It was, you know, way before digital. Yeah. So you have to go home, you have to process the film, you have to, you know, wash it, dry it, contact it before you really see what you have. And the very first day I got one picture that's actually the cover of the book. And when I saw that picture, I said, holy shit, I can do this because it was like five kids, you know. It was just, to me, it was the decisive moment. Everything came together. I mean, it wasn't like I was telling them what to do. Oh, chin up, arm down. None of that. It just happened. And if you look at the context, you, you see, you know, there's all this madness, but there's this one picture that just, you know, captures it. And I always thought, wow, okay, this is, you know, if I can do that, I can, I can do that. So. Well, and you're the only person at that time that's really recognizing the beauty in the scene, right? Like, but what do these kids make of you? When you kind of show up with all this gear, because first of all, like the legend of the Lori side at that time, it's not, not, it doesn't sound like a very, uh, you know, accommodating place necessarily to street photography. And then also these kids too, what would they make of you? Well, I mean, the first, you know, when I got down there, I mean, the f I said to myself, okay, I have the paper set up. I have my, you know, my, my case of cameras. I'm going to have to go across the street because I was hoping that people would be coming out of the subways and all that. Yeah. Uh, but I said, I got to go over and break the ice. So um, the first person that I saw that looked really gnarly was this kid, Tony Dust. And he was this like Puerto Rican skinhead with this huge gash on his head. And I said, oh, I'm going to walk up to him. <laughs> and I was like, uh, yo, I'm doing a book on the matinee. I'd like to do your picture. And he was like, are you a cop? And I basically said, fuck no. And he goes, all right. So we went across. The street. <laughs> That's kind of how it started. Um and then, I mean, you know, it just it kind of happened organically from there, you know. But a funny thing is, like Mike Judge, he recently said, yeah, I remember when uh, when uh, Jimmy Yu and Mark, uh, Mark Ryan went over there and had their pictures taken. He said, I'm not going, man. He goes, that guy's a cop. <laughs> and he said, I, I kind of regret it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it was just one of those things. I was out there, I mean, I started, you know, and in the summer and then next thing you know it's february and it's 20 degrees and i'm freezing my ass off and you know i was out there probably 20 25 times over the course of almost two years um but i was out there a lot in the winter you know what i mean i think people are like, okay 
And I hung out. You know, I went into the shows and supported, you know, and bought records and shirts and, you know, and, and you know, I'd pay the three bucks to get in and, you know, and do all that. So, well, like you obviously you went up to like the one of the gnarliest people, you know, legendary personality in that scene on the first day. But was there anyone that you ever came across where you were like, oh, no, I'm not going to ask this guy for this photograph <laughs> or where you regretted asking someone afterwards? Well, no, I mean, you know, again, I, you know, after asking Tony and all that, I don't think I didn't really ask anybody. It just kind of happened. I mean, yeah. you know, like people would come across the street to see what I was doing or then, you know, fire, like Jimmy Gestapo was over there with, you know, Ted and John, the wrecking machine. And they were just kind of hanging around because it was like, you know, let's get away from across the street for a minute. So um, it just kind of happened that way, you know what I mean? Um, but I do know this one kid, Andy, who kind of, you know, helped uh, re resuscitate the project, said to me years later, he says, oh, man, at that time, because you were like 10 years older, you were ancient <laughs> compared to, you know what I mean? I oh, thanks a lot. But that was, you know, 10 years is a, is a big difference, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I was going to say, is, was there anyone that you kind of remember, like that you remembered from those laughing dogs, you know, shirts kind of era that, that held over, or is it like a completely new scene? <laughs> well, <clears throat> you know, I mean, the hardcore scene, yeah, but yeah. Um, Susanna Ryan, who was the, you know, she bartended a bunch over there, um, you know, her husband was in, you know, the Rudy's and, you know, a lot of those, you know, earlier bands that Hilly managed and booked all the time, so, and then, you know, Connie Barrett, of course, who, you know, wound up managing, you know, Agnostic Front and, and a bunch of other people. She was one of the original people that I knew and remembered from that scene in the seventies. Mm -hmm. So, but for the most part, no, I mean, for the hardcore shows completely, you know, it was, that was, a, that was a whole new thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. A whole new thing. Absolutely. Did you know Michael Alago by any chance? Uh, I, I know him now. Yeah. I know him now. No, just back Did then. Not, you know, I'm listen, I'm sure I saw him back in the green room at the Ritz a million times. <laughs> Wait, use the bathroom with Joey Ramone. But, um, but no, but I mean, we've actually, um, you know, reconnected recently and, uh, you know, Drew Stone's film about him is absolutely incredible. I mean, when I met him recently, when I did this book signing thing at Generation Records, he came up and I, I just hugged him and held him because, I mean, he's a, a true survivor in every, um, you know, every step of the way and, you know, a real inspiration to people. So a Absolutely. A, a legend a le and, a, and a favorite guest on this show several times now. Cool. That's great. Yeah, he's awesome. Um, well, I guess like, you know, like, uh, you know, you, you do have these odd familiar faces that you recognize, but what, like, was it just this documenting the scene that was drawing to you or, or were there any bands that you were like, no, I'm, I'm into this band now other than, you know, just supporting them to support the scene? Well, uh, you know, I mean, uh, you know, people, you know, now can, can say all kinds of things, but I remember seeing Agnostic Front and just being completely blown away. Yeah. Uh, the Chromags. I'm um, again, you know, were amazing. Um, you know, Death Before Dishonor, all the local bands, Murphy's Law, because I just loved seeing this communion of kids. You know, there's as many kids on the stage as there are in the in the audience, and they're all just going completely crazy. <laughs> um, you know, and as an outsider, if you look at this, you're going, what the hell's going on here? But it was really, you know, a great thing. But no, I became fans of you know 
all those bands. I loved the Boston band. I loved Jerry's Kids and and the FUs who I saw and they were great. And you know, Crucifix came in from San Francisco and TSOL and um, I, Social Distortion. I mean, there were just you know a lot of uh, a lot of great bands that uh, that I saw at the time, which I you know I became a fan. I didn't know who they were. Mm-hmm. MDC. I didn't know who they were until until they played. You know, so. Well, yeah, like such a vital era. Like all those bands you mentioned, those are like that's the that's like the uh, the 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 hard hardcore of hardcore. Yeah, I mean, I just I just enjoyed it, um, and I just really again felt lucky that uh, you know that I was able to uh, experience that. You know, and to this day, I mean, it's like it's incredible how you know around the world people you know, talk about it. Or if you mentioned somebody, oh, yeah, I remember this and that. And, and it kind of blows my mind because, you know, at the time it seemed very regional, but really now it's, you know, it's a worldwide thing. Well, yeah, and like you think about the bands like the Beastie Boys or, or you know, artists that came out of that, Matthew Barney, like all these people that were just kind of around that scene that went on to have influence in, you know, cultural far, far flung from hardcore and punk, you know, like just had like impacts all over the world. Yeah. Um, how did you kind of know the project was over? Like, what was there like a, a date you had set out in the beginning? <laughs> well, um, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, my my mother died in 1980 and my father was alone. And uh, he came down with uh, he was one of the first 300 cases of mesothelioma, which is that asbestos related disease um oh, and sorry. you know in a way uh it was one of those things where I, you know it was very you know it was hard hard to deal with um and this kind of helped me focus on that mm-hmm. but um he died in may of 85 so i think by by the end of june early july 85 i was pretty much done you know and also crack it hit the streets which was kind of weird i remember um, you know, packing up my stuff, you know, and, you know, the, the light was going down and, and it was time to pack up because I didn't have any light to shoot with. But I remember seeing like the flickering of lights and I'm like, what the hell is that? Someone said, oh, they're smoking woolers over there. I'm like, what's a woolers? Like, it's crack, yo. <laughs> you know, and it's like, okay, not good. But I just, um, I was assembling the work as I went along. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, by then, I think I had enough to work with. Um, and you know, again, I mean, after the, you know, after my father died, I mean, I had a lot of other, you know, stuff that I had to deal with. So it was kind of like, you know, had to work, had to do all these other things. So it just kind of happened. I mean, I don't think there was any particular day, but, um, you know, that's just what happened. Yeah. Like, I guess, you know, it, it also is a, you know, when you kind of wrap that up, that is almost like a, a, a changing point for hardcore and punk too, in New York city, you know, you have like a, it seems like a, 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 a you know, like a shift in waves that would come in around 86 and 87. Um, was it crack? Do you think that did that? Or like what, what changed that scene or changed that, that vibe downtown? Oh no, I don't, I mean, I don't think, I don't think the kids were smoking crack. I mean, there's probably a few that were, but I mean, it was just kind of that, you know, you know, the, all the, you know, the SRO hotels and the ballot was really, you know, was really funky at that time. But I mean, the shows were getting bigger uh, and they were definitely getting more violent. You know what I mean? Um, I never, you know, I mean, the shows when I was going, you know, the kids were great. I mean, they always welcomed, you know, bands out of town. It was like, yeah, you know, the FUs are coming. uh, You know, Um, 
but then I think it just started to get a lot more popular and, um, and, you know, people, you know, I don't know, you know, kids were coming in and, you know, the, the slam dancing just turned into like brawls and stuff like that. So, um, but I mean, I, again, that's just my own observation mm-hmm. of uh, what was going on. So, well, you know, you're not the first to make that observation on, on the show, you know, like there's definitely Freddie Alva, who was on the show recently talked about how there was like a, a point where, you know, like a, it wasn't even bands that had started cause these bands were around prior, but these bands started getting popular or more popular and brought in a different fan base. And, and there were some shows that he was describing that seem, uh, you know, pretty harrowing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when you kind of like finish this whole thing, you obviously you said you were assembling the work as you were going through, you have this massive, you know, collection of, of photographs of portraits. What did you want to do with it? What was the original intention? Well, the original intention was to do a book because, I mean, I had been working with Avedon, who was doing his book in the American West and had been exposed to that whole process, you know, and I was working with, you know, incredible art directors at the time, Marvin Israel, um, Yolanda Cuomo, people like that who who just, you know, really made a name for themselves as as art directors and creatives. So, um, you know, yeah, I wanted to do a book and I did assemble, you know, like a dummy of a book. Um, and, you know, I mean, at the time, before the digital age, it was a lot harder to make things. I mean, I had my own dark room and all that stuff, but it costs money, man, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so, you know, to make the prints and buy the film and do all that stuff, I mean, it was a, it was a real process. Um, so, you know, doing that, I mean, I, I did make a book and I think I, you know, I showed it to a couple of people and I thought it was cool, but I, I don't think, uh, I don't think the focus was totally there. Or even realizing, you know, you know what it was. So, you know, it's one of those things where, I mean, I use the photographs to show to people, like, you know, this is some of the stuff that I do. And, wow, isn't this interesting? I actually shot this on the street, but it looks like it's in the studio. You know, that kind of thing. But it was really years later that, um, you know, that it kind of really resurfaced as a body of work. You know? Yeah. No, absolutely. Well, because it's it is such a legendary body of work, you know, and and the people you documented and the the time and space and stuff. How, like, what did you kind of um, like when p- people started expressing interest in this? What did you kind of uh, what was your hope would happen? Well, and you know, again, I mean, really, it it wasn't until like two thousand six, I had gotten an email from one of the kids that I photographed, Anderson Slade. Um, and he said, hey, man, you remember me? I was this 12-year-old Mohawk punk kid you photographed. And I was like, yeah, of course I remember you. Because I kept files on most of the kids and their names. Um, I said, yeah, of course I remember you. So we started talking via email. And he said, oh, I'm in touch with, you know, I photographed him and his sister and, uh, you know, Gina from uh, Luna Chicks later on. And oh, all these that's awesome. And all these different people. And I said, wow, that's cool. And MySpace had just come out. So I decided to put together a you know, matinee photographs, MySpace page. And like within two weeks, like hundreds of people responding, going, oh my God, that's so-and-so. Oh, he died. Oh, this guy's a judge now. You know, it was really, really mind-blowing. Because really at the time, I mean, I had all these photographs, but I didn't really know, other than a handful of kids, I didn't really know the kids, didn't really... um, wondered you know what they were you know what they were up to or 
you know, whatever. But all of a sudden with social media, it just became, became way more of a three-dimensional, you know, situation. So um, that's when I started thinking, wow, this is cool. I should, you know, definitely start to, you know, re, you know, reevaluate this and, you know, being able to make digital files and being able to send people stuff electronically and reach out to them was so much easier, you know. So that's kind of how that whole thing, um, you know, expanded from there, so to speak. Yeah, like, and it, once again, like I guess I kind of mentioned earlier, but like it, you know, given the fact that these it was such a young scene and such a young group of people, but it's amazing, you know, as you mentioned, judges, like you know, musicians, artists, like uh, you know, other photographers, like how many people from that little scene went on to do major things in this world. No, and yeah, it's it's absolutely mind boggling. You know what I mean? Um, it, it really is. And you know, I, I went back in two thousand seven, and I did a a bunch of interviews with people. Um, you know, because I was like, I'd love to in, you know interview them now, kind of like the film The Seven Ups. Every seven years, they go absolutely, yeah. And they, and they film them, but um, you know, at the time when I did it, it was like four below zero, and nobody wanted to come out. <laughs> But I did get a couple of interviews, and it was really fascinating to hear, um, you know, the stories and how the, the matinee was like, you know, that that kind of, you know, congregation where, they, you know, even though they might have been outsiders or misfits, that was the one place they could go and feel accepted for, you know, however long. So, so that's, I mean, that's really how it all started. And then, um, you know, I, I showed it to a few people and there was some interest, but um, nothing ever really, uh, you know, came uh, to fruition until I'd gotten a call from Chris Minacucci, who was, um, I don't even know, he, I guess he was with Radio Raheem at the time, but yeah, they were, and they were doing a, a record with uh, Sacrilege, and they needed a photograph that he thought I had, and I... I found the picture that he described and I sent it to him and he said, Oh, that's a great picture, but it's not sacrilege. I'm like, Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> uh, but we started talking and, um, and then, uh, you know, I mentioned I was doing the book and, um, you know, they said that they'd be interested in doing it. And I really liked radio Raheem because young and smart mm -hmm. and really historians that wanted to preserve the hardcore punk culture. And mm -hmm. that to me was, a selling point because they were like, look, we're not interested in making money. I mean, yeah, it'd be great if we made money, but the fact of the matter is this is an important project and we want to, we want to preserve it. And that to me was much better than someone saying, yeah, we want to make coffee mugs and t-shirts and, uh, you know, we're going to make, uh, you know, uh, the FU's household work, you know? What I mean? <laughs> well, I, yeah, they definitely like that. The book looks amazing. Like the packaging on Thank it, it's, it's gorgeous. Thank you. Um, and it, and you're, and it really does do justice because it is a really important project. Like, and I think it, you know, I, I you know, you're talking about, you know, I, earlier on, you know, just being that place, the, the right time, but you had the eye to kind of see the beauty in something that no one else was seeing the beauty in. Oh, thanks. I and mean, I, you know, listen, I grew up, listen, I went to Catholic school on the Lower East Side. I had to wear a uniform every freaking day. So, when, you know, people say, oh, well, well, you know, what kind of clothes did you wear? I'm like, when I got out of school, I wore ripped up jeans <laughs> and a beat up t-shirt for as long as I possibly could. And I could kind of relate to those kids on that 
that level, you know what I mean? Um, you know, listen, some kids lived in squats, some kids lived in fancy homes in Connecticut, but, you know, when they were there, they were all like, you know, this kind of uh, cohesive group of misfits, you know, mm-hmm. and I could totally relate. Well, I, I think the thing that also is great about your book is that, you know, you always see them as that cohesive group. Like most of the shots that you see are of all these people singing as a crowd, you know, or, or like on stage as a crowd. But to see them broken off into small groups or individuals, like that's when you really get to look at them and and, and see the individuals that made up this crowd. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just thinking about it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, again, it's like when you when you take them out of the environment and you just you know put them in front of a you know blank wall, it's like you really begin to study, you know, the you know all the elements that make up that person, um, and also, I mean, you know, uh, you know, to a maybe to a certain unfair degree, people become very self conscious when they're suddenly in this little environment. Um, and I don't think that was really, you know, it certainly wasn't my intention. Um, it was just like a great way to to make beautiful photographs. But, you, you know, I was definitely interested in, you know, knowing what a 16-year-old on the outside can look really rough and, and you know, obnoxious. But inside, there's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like Mark Ryan talked about, hey, we most of us came from pretty messed up situations and uh and this was a time for us to kind of you know all heal and you know be together and commiserate and and do all that um and you know and that's an important thing and i think in the pictures that i that i like i i see that vulnerability i see that sensitivity and and all that which makes you know which makes up any you know any teenager you know what I mean? They're complex. You know, there's nothing real. You know, you can see a jacket and a button and it's kind of superficial. But beyond that, there's a lot going on. Absolutely. Well, like, I, I make documentaries for a living myself now. And just like that, that way that camera, that that sort of like infinite eye of that lens exposes a vulnerability in even the most hardened of subjects. And you really see that in your photographs. Like someone like Tony Dust, like keeps coming back to Tony Dust. But you know, this is a legendary figure, but, you know, to see him kind of in that moment looking right in that lens, you really get a different sort of take on him. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I love those photographs, but I mean, you know, also, I mean, just because he was, you know, one of the first, if not the first. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, he's such a character, but yeah, that's, that's it. So uh, where did you kind of go after you'd finished this project? Like, I know you eventually make your way out to Los Angeles, but did you just kind of stay involved in music or what was your hope to do next? Back, um, back well, when I you mean, f- wrapped up originally, I mean. Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, I'd finished working with Avedon. His book came out and I started, you know, doing photography, you know, on my own. Um, you know, I worked for magazines like Spin and Interview and, and you know, had assignments and, you know, did a lot of music. I mean, I have my little studio on East 11th Street, which was a, a block from the Ritz. So, you know, I did intercept a lot of people, um, you know. And then um, also, I mean, these photographs I'd, I'd shown to a young designer, David Cameron, um, at the time. And he loved the pictures and he was, you know, really into um, designing clothes that, you know, had a real street sense. And we wound up making um, a couple of uh, videos together, you know, kind of point to purchase for, you know, Bloomingdale's and Barney's and all that. It definitely had that look 
in that edge and someone had, um, you know, someone saw it and said, hey, man, you ever think about making music videos? And I thought, oh, God, music videos are just the worst. <laughs> but I started doing it. Uh, there was a kind of a, a transition from, you know, the Van Halen, here's the story, blah, 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 to kind of just eye-dazzling, you know, fast edit type of thing. So I started directing a bunch of music videos and doing, you know, continuing to do photography and all that. So that's kind of where, you know, where I was going. Because you did the Chili Peppers video too, right? I did two. I did Knock Me Down and Higher Ground. Yeah, like two all, 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 over, all over the course of one weekend, which just about killed me. <laughs> was that an assignment, or did you know those guys at all? Or No, I was um, – uh, I think they had liked – I had done some stuff with Living Color. I had done Cult yeah. of Personality, which became this big, you know, MTV, you know, hit. Um, and they liked that, so they hired me to um, <clears throat> to do Knock Me Down. And then I did um, a higher a higher ground um, with them as well with their uh, friend Bill Stobau, who uh, since passed, but he was an incredible animator and he was a friend of the band. So um, that was a, that was a fun collaboration. So I get like when you move out to LA, do you stay in touch with? Uh, I guess you're like you know obviously there's Chili Peppers and Living Color. You're staying in touch with underground rock and roll, but is that something you've kind of tried to keep in touch with to this day, or is or is doing this book brought you back in touch with it? Well, I mean, the book has, you know, brought me back in touch with, you know, a lot of people that I'm actually meeting, you know, and I kind of joke around about how, um, you know, I, yeah, I met this one kid for a 60th of a second back in 1983, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and now, now we're hanging out again. So that's kind of interesting. But, um, you know, with social media and all that, I mean, like living color, I mean, I stay in touch with them through social media and all that. And, uh, you know, they're they're homeboys from New York. So, um, but, you know, everyone's schedules is pretty crazy, but there's some great memories. And uh, it's funny when you run into someone you haven't seen in 30 years, you know, there's that moment of, oh, God, I wonder what they think. And then all of a sudden it's like you're slapping each other's backs and you're, you're laughing about the time that you broke into this place to go see a show, you know, that kind of a thing. So. Were you like, yeah, like, I guess, I'm, I'm sorry, what I was trying to get at, were you aware of the fact that, like, you know, bands like Agnostic Front, bands like, you know, Chromags had kind of also gone on and inspired this worldwide movement? Like, would you kind of keep in touch with the fact that this had been almost growing, this New York hardcore brand had become, well, a brand? Oh, uh, you know, well, you know, not really until... Um you know, probably when I, you know, kind of re the, the project resurfaced in 2006. And again, with social media, you know, I'm listening to, you know, kids that are like 15, 20, 25 years younger than me, you know, talking about, oh, back in the day, it must have been incredible. But they're still being influenced by bands like that. So, um, you know, I mean, I didn't think I, I didn't know at the time. I just, you know, I thought it was incredible and was glad that I was part of it. I don't know if that's answering your question. No, that does, um, definitely does. But, you know, I mean, it's like I'm, I'm thrilled to see. I mean, Agnostic Front, 35 years, and they're playing shows in Europe. It's like, you know, you can't get a ticket. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like Vinny and Roger and those guys, I mean, they've been doing it for so long. And I was just looking at, um, you know, on Instagram, you know, they're here tonight, they're tomorrow. And it's like, my God. And it's not like these are not easy shows, man. I mean, they go out every night and just, you know, leave 150% on the stage. So it's uh, it's pretty incredible. Oh yeah, like the other band that inspired listen, my listen, band. Just, just to say, I mean, if if you read Roger's book, I mean, his book 
is incredible. I mean, you know, it's like, how does someone survive the things that he went through? I mean, it's really, really incredible. And I think, in a way, he's really blessed. And every night, night after night, they go out and do these shows. And I think, you know, he's given back, you know, for uh, the fact that he's, you know, that he's lived through so much of this. It's unbelievable. Yeah, like you, 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 like you're saying, right? You mentioned earlier too, like all a lot of these kids. It's amazing when you go through a lot of these people's stories. It was like a scene of of survivors. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's and it's you know amazing. And once again, how many have come through and, and pulled through? But it's also they're having casualties. Like a you know, it's a it's going through that you know going through the book, kind of seeing people that you know are are gone now. Like how many of them went at a really young age too. Oh yeah, no, it's unbelievable. And you know, like I said, a lot of the kids I didn't really didn't really know, but you know, then you know, years later, people go, "Oh, you know, this is this guy, and here's his story." And you know, it's really, you know, it's really incredible. Um, well, I just kind of wanted to find out if you if you ever have plans of wanting to do a project similar to this ever again. You know, I mean, it's. Um, I mean, I would never say no. I mean, I yeah, sure. <laughs> could could like. Oh, could a scene like this exist now with like, as you say, social media and everything like you were really, you know, as you know, I keep marveling at like the only person there doing it like you're doing it, documenting it like this. It's almost like would something like this go under the radar in the same way now? You know, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I think in a lot of ways, I mean, I'm not a big like promoter of myself, you know what I mean? I just figure if something's good, it'll happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but I mean, there are people like Angela Boatwright, who is an incredible photographer. Um, she was in New York for years, and she's out here in L.A. now. And she's been, you know, she made a film called um, Los Punks, It's All We've Got. Mm-hmm. And it's really all about the kind of, you know, Hispanic, um, hardcore punk and metal scene um, in East LA and it's fucking heavy and she's like just in the middle of it. Um, and you know, and very compassionate. Um, and I think her work is really, really strong and it's inspiring. I I mean, it inspires me and I think it should definitely inspire other people and certainly young kids that, you know, are interested in, in doing documentaries and photography and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you have to promote it and I think she's done a a good job of promoting, but she's also had some, you know, some backing from, uh, I think it was Vans or someone like that, but they recognize the importance of these subcultures. And, and you know, and all that. So I mean, yeah, I mean, I I think it can be done, um, and it also helps. You know, I mean, it helps that uh, you know that media outlet outlets recognize um, the work and uh, and let the work speak for itself. It's terrible when they when they go ahead and start you know making their own you know comments and, and judgments about it. It's like. Shut up! Just you know, let the work speak for itself. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's certainly possible. Um, you know, I think about it. I, th- I think about you know projects that I like to do. I mean, look, I'm getting older, and uh, you know, it takes it takes a lot. It really does. You know what I mean? And even this project, I mean, is seeing legs after 30 years. But really, and I had told this to um, uh, Diane Kamikaze, the the, the great. Um, 
a radio personality at WFMU. I told her, you know, I said, if I if this book came out in 86, people would have said, oh, yeah, there's Jimmy Gestapo. He's got a goatee in that picture. <laughs> but when you go 30 years later, you say, oh, wow, you know, Jimmy's still doing it. Or here's, you know, here's Ira. He passed away. And there's this there's real history. And, and the photographs take on a much more historical significance when you've had that amount of time, you know, and I think that that's important too. So, you know, because look, you can go, you can go to a bookstore right now and see the coolest hippest trend going on right now. You know, bikers and speedos, or you know, whatever it is, um, and it's kind of a fad. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But I think to look at that, you know, years down the line, you go, "Wow, look what they were doing back in 2020." You know, it's kind of crazy. So, <laughs> yeah, well, that's the, the well, that's the thing, right? It's 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 that real authenticity that will ring through forever and ring true forever. Yeah. And I mean, you know, with my photographs, I didn't know what the, I mean, to me, my biggest fear was that the kids, and I do say the kids because they were at the time, that they would appreciate the work because you just don't know. Because, I mean, I wasn't trying to, you know, prove a point. I wasn't trying to say, hey, look how cool they are or uncool or whatever. I just, you know, I just thought it was important to, you know, have honest, objective observations. Um, but I wanted, you know, really, I mean, when when it, when somebody calls me and says, dude, thank like Mark Ryan said, man, thank you so much for documenting this scene. You know, it's like the yearbook I never had. Well, that that to me is like better than, you know, a front page in the New York Times. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's really that that's important. So, well, on behalf of all the rest of us, thank you for giving us a look at the other kids yearbook that we never had, because <laughs> it is an amazing document. And, uh, and you, you really, you know, did a great service to all of us fans of this music and gave us a chance to kind of look at it from a angle that we wouldn't have had a chance to otherwise at all. Oh, well, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Thank you, Drew, for coming on the show. And once again, please go there and pick up Matinee. It's a fantastic, fantastic read or, or, or art book. I guess it's an, it's an art book, too. And I'm glad it's finally gotten the treatment as a project that it deserves. So hats off once again to Radio Raheem, a continuing favorite here on the show, not just because they're friends of ours, but because they do it right. So check out all their reissues. Check out everything they do. Uh, speaking of checking out things next week, you're going to want to check out this show because next week on the show, Jamie Stewart of Shushu is on, and this is a fantastic episode. Uh, someone I'd never really, no, I'd never spoken to before, but someone that I think I immediately felt a, a common bond with, and we get into some cool stuff. There is some stuff that comes up next week on the show that I don't know, even I would say that even some of the more, uh, deep, rooted, deep-headed Shushu fans are going to be surprised at some awesome punk connections. Awesome punk connections. That is next week on the show. So please come back. Once again, go to iTunes, subscribe to this thing, write a review, rate it, tell all your friends. uh, Tell them that Jamie's going to be on next week because it's worth it. And that's it. Go out there and make your own culture. Anyone can do this stuff. Uh, Thank you once again to the fine folks at Vans for helping me do this stuff so I'm not spending myself into debt doing it anymore. And uh, thank you. Thank you for supporting this thing. I promise you, now that 2018 
is upon us. I can see big things for this podcast this year. I got some big plans. So that's all I'll say for now. Bye. See you next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.